Well, it is now 2000 today. The Millennium New Year's in London on the Waterloo Bridge. Fireworks running right the way up the river from Tower Bridge to Westminster. Um, which was great until the end of the fireworks. 50,000 people all moved in one direction. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. And then we all just banged up against the backs of the people in front of us. The police had kettled the street for some reason, and nobody could move. We stood there for two and a half hours. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why ReSound collects, curates, and brings you the best stories from around the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, on the air, the internet, via podcast, or things we find hidden away in nooks and crannies. And then we share it with you each week on ReSound. People were fainting, people were pushing and shoving from the back, the police were pushing from the front. It was terrifying. And when they did finally let us go through, uh, a gentleman uh, approached me from behind and goosed me. When you're in a tight space, when you feel trapped, literally or figuratively, the walls start closing in. The heart races. Adrenaline detonates in your bloodstream. You shake. Panic rises. Sweat falls. You gotta get out. And I was so full of pent-up fear, anger, aggression from this situation that I turned around and I just punched him. Today on ReSound, the ins and outs of confinement. Stay tuned. Extreme conditions drive us to extreme decisions. If the stakes are high, then so is the risk and the possibility of reward. Which is what Henry Brown was after, the reward part, when he sealed himself into a very tight and dangerous space. Nate DeMeo tells his story in Picture a Box. Picture a box. It's made of wood. Maybe pine. It's simple. Three feet long, two feet wide. Two and a half feet deep. And open at the top. Now picture yourself climbing inside. Sit down. Feel the wood against your back. Run your fingers along the rough surface of the boards. Maybe you have to hug your knees to your chest just to fit inside. Picture someone closing the box. Nailing it shut. Picture the darkness. Picture a man. Five foot eight, but big barrel-chested, nearly 200 pounds. His hair is parted in a thick wave, like Frederick Douglass when he was young. His hand is wrapped in a bandage. This man is Henry Brown. He was born bound in 1815 on a Virginia plantation owned by a man who treated Henry and his family well, which is a relative term. They weren't beaten. They were well-fed and clothed and sheltered. But even as a boy, Henry Brown knew that wasn't enough because he felt that love and friendship were the most important things in life. And he knew that if you were not free, those things could be taken from you at any moment. And when he was a young man, they were. When the man who owned him and his family died and his assets were distributed among his four sons, 
and Henry Brown and his mother and father and his sisters and brothers were among those assets. Henry Brown went to work in Richmond in a factory owned by the man's son. He worked 14 and 16 hour days, bailing and boxing the tobacco leaves that had been cleaned and separated from seeds by women and children. The factory's overseer would beat slaves. He tied a feverish man to a post in the center of the warehouse as an object lesson, teaching people what would happen if they tried to take a sick day. But this man was better, less cruel than many men in his position. Better, Henry had heard in rumors and whispers, than the men who now owned his parents and his siblings. But he would never know for sure, because he would never see the family he loved again. And so when Henry Brown fell in love with a slave named Nancy, he went to his owner. He told him he wanted to marry Nancy. He wanted to start a family with Nancy. But he needed to know. He needed the man's word that they wouldn't be separated. That she wouldn't be sold. He said he would work his whole life for this man. He would never complain. He would never make a run for freedom if the man could make that promise. The man gave him his word and gave him his blessing. And Henry Brown and Nancy Brown started a family. They had three kids in three years. And Henry Brown was as happy as he could ever expect to be. And then the man who owned him changed his mind. Nancy was getting pregnant too often. She was missing too much work. And so he sold her and her children. Henry Brown was at work when he found out. His family had already been taken from his home. And so Henry Brown did the only thing a man in his position could do. He finished his shift. And when he was done and he was allowed to leave, he ran out of the factory and through the streets of Richmond in the dying light of day to a corner where a thick crowd of slaves stood, where they always stood, whenever their friends and family were marched away from them. And Henry Brown got there in time to catch a glimpse of his oldest child in a wagon bound for North Carolina. And in the columns of people that trailed behind it, men and women, older children, dozens and dozens, shuffling through the dust of the stone street, he found Nancy, rope around her neck, an iron band around her wrists. And he ran to her, and he slipped his hand between her bound hands, and laced his fingers in hers. And he walked with her, in the slow march for four miles and then watched as she disappeared into the night. And Henry Brown swore this wouldn't be the last time he would see her. He found a man named Smith who knew another man named Smith who knew men in the North who would help Henry Brown if he could somehow find a way to escape to Philadelphia. Picture a box three feet long, two feet wide, two and a half feet deep, in the center of the floor of a shoemaker shop owned by a man named Smith. Now picture Henry Brown, five foot eight, 200 pounds, climbing into that box. His hand is wrapped in a bandage because the only way he could leave work long enough to even attempt an escape was if he were injured. So he stuck his finger in sulfuric acid until it ate to the bone, and they let him take a day off. Picture Henry Brown sitting in the bottom of the box pulling his knees to his chest and leaning forward, curling himself into a ball so he could fit, as the man named Smith shut the top of the box, nailed it closed, and all went dark. 
Picture this man named Smith, a white man, only four foot nine inches tall, rolling the box in a dolly to the shipping clerk, whispering to Brown to keep quiet, telling the clerk that this simple wooden box marked this end up contained shoes and fragile things, and asking the man to be careful, because a lot could happen to the contents of a box that had to travel 250 miles by wagon and locomotive and steamboat. Now picture this box and the man inside it as it made that journey. 27 hours. Picture Henry Brown inside as he felt himself lift off the ground, as he hoped he'd remain upright, as he hoped nothing on the wagon would block his air holes. Picture his relief as they didn't. And picture a moment when the box was thrown onto the back of a train, and when it was transferred onto a steamship, and placed upside down, and he spent eight hours on his head, afraid his eyes would burst from their sockets, sure he would die, but unable to cry out, because there were men sitting on top of the box, hanging out and drinking beers. And then picture the box being opened in a fancy living room in Philadelphia, and Henry Brown stepping out of the box, a free man. Word got around. A man doesn't successfully mail his way out of bondage without word getting around. His escape was celebrated by abolitionists throughout the North. His biography came out in September of 1849, just four months after he had come out of the box, and Henry Brown became Henry Box Brown, and he was good at the role. He had a hell of a story to tell, and he told it well. All over the Northeast, people paid to hear him tell the story and hear him talk of his plan to one day earn enough money to buy freedom for his wife and his children and reunite his family in the North. But by the next year, things had changed. The man named Smith was arrested for trying to ship other slaves North, and Frederick Douglass himself was blaming Henry Brown, saying his fame had hurt the cause of liberty and cut off a route to freedom. Henry Brown was beaten and nearly killed by thugs on his way to give a talk in Providence. And then Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act. And Brown was not only a fugitive slave who could be legally kidnapped and taken back to his owner in Virginia, he was a famous fugitive slave. So he left for England, where things would be different and safe, vowing to return one day and free his family. And things were different in England. He arrived in the fall of 1850 and found that he was already famous. This country that had banned slavery throughout its colonies 17 years before was fascinated by slavery in its former colonies. People lined up to hear the story that they had read about in the papers, straight from the man who'd lived it. He sold out a month of shows in Liverpool. He was joined in the road by the man named Smith, who had avoided prison thanks to the help of his wealthy friends up north and the two of them played concert halls in London and churches in the Midlands and public houses in the Irish countryside. Hundreds of performances. Money rolled in. And then Smith told Brown it was time to go. He had enough money to buy the freedom of his wife and his children and his parents and his siblings several times over. It was time to go back and be a powerful symbol of freedom as the man who came out of the box. But Henry Brown didn't want to go back. He didn't want to be a symbol of freedom when he could simply be free. Because what happens when you open the box? Or you step out of the back of the cave? Or whatever allegory you want to try to apply to this real man 
and his real life. A man who was born bound in the land of the free, who had first risked his life to go to a place where he was not bound, but he was not safe, and who then found his way to a place where he was beloved, a place from which the people he had once loved so much were so far away in every way. Henry Brown was a free man, and he was free to choose. He was free to make money or make mistakes and make any life he could in the time he had left. And so the man named Smith left back to America to be an important man in an important movement for freedom. And Henry Brown stayed to be a free man. Henry Brown didn't return to America until 1875, 10 years after the Civil War had freed the slaves without him. He was accompanied by his daughter Annie, and a new wife whose name no one now knows. He would die several years later. No one knows when, and no one knows where. But they know he performed as a magician. He had for years in England, long after the Henry Box Brown story had worn itself out. But the box itself had not. That same box he had climbed out of 26 years before was part of the act. Picture a box, a simple wooden box, three feet long, two feet wide, two and a half feet deep, sitting in the spotlight in the center of a stage at a magic show somewhere in America. And picture a man in his 60s, 5'8", but stooped at the shoulders after years of living a singular life. His hair has gone white, like Frederick Douglass when he was old. Picture him climbing into the box and disappearing. Picture a Box by Nate DeMeo for his podcast, The Memory Palace. Sometimes, like in Henry Brown's story, the only way out of a tight space is by getting into an even tighter one. After World War II, East Germans, suddenly and completely cut off from friends and family by the Berlin Wall, found there was no way out, certainly not over, around, or through the wall. But the subject of our next story had another idea, which required patience, persistence, and a shovel. Here's Roman Mars and Daniel Gross to explain. Five steps to keep in a defecting population. Step one, build a 12-foot reinforced concrete wall. There was a wall. Step two, build a second wall right next to it, creating a no-man's land in between. Then there was a 10, 20-meter wide strip of land, which... uh, there was absolutely nothing. Das Niemandsland. That was sprayed with chemicals that not even grass could grow. And it was raked every day that you could see the slightest clue that there was a, an escape attempt. Step three, build a narrow road for vehicles of the secret police. Die Stasi. Step four, add electrified barbed wire and also. Step five, signal wire. Signal wires that if you touch it, immediately in one of the watchtowers, there was the alarm ringing. 
At its peak, the Berlin Wall was 100 miles long. Today, only about a mile is left standing. Compared with other famous walls in history, this wall had a pretty short lifespan. The Great Wall of China has been around for 2,500 years. So have the walls of ancient Babylon. Although its most famous part, the Ishtar Gate, is actually in a museum in Berlin. This is Daniel Gross. But even though the wall dividing Berlin into east and west was only up for 30 years, it had a huge impact on the psyche of the city. It broke families in two. Now, let's remember how we got here. In 1945, Berlin was the fallen Nazi capital. The weary victors could agree on two things. One, Hitler was bad. Two, Germany needed a big change. After that, they did not agree on very much. Berlin was carved up into two sectors, with Western countries controlling the west of the city and the Soviet Union controlling the east. West Berlin had a booming post-war economy, but life was tougher in East Berlin. So in the decade that followed, more than two million people fled from east to west. East Germany was losing its most skilled workers as they sought jobs and to reunite with their families across the border. And East Germany was losing face with every East Berliner who chose to defect. And that's why, in 1961, East Germany closed its border to West Berlin with a wall. But this isn't a story about the design of the Berlin Wall. This is a story about one design to get through it, or really, underneath it. Rolf Kabisch was there. The tunnel had a diameter of less than one square meter. We had to save space yeah the less we excavate the better it was you couldn't sit you were laying on your back or on, on your front and with the feet we were driving the spade into the front face you couldn't dig for more than two hours then you are really dead yeah, yeah. In 1964, Rolf was 21, a student at the Free University of Berlin. Rolf was studying civil engineering. At school, he made a lot of models and did a lot of math, but he hadn't really ever built anything. And like virtually everyone in West Berlin, Rolf knew and was related to people in East Berlin. Parents, brothers, sisters, cousins, classmates. How could they get to the West? You could not jump over the wall. You could not fly over it. It was the only way. Dig a tunnel. In 1964, Westerners could still visit the East if they were in good standing with the East German government. That year, Ralph took a trip with his parents and sister from the West to the East to visit extended family. My cousin approached my sister and me and said, can you do something for me? I must get out of here. Rumors had been going around of tunnels popping up beneath the city. So when I get back to to Berlin. Uh, I had an idea who was involved, yeah. And uh, I approached him. We were living together in the student's dormitory. I approached him, I asked him, and uh, four days later was in the tunnel. Now to be clear, the kids were tunneling from west to east. They were tunneling into communist East Berlin. Ralph was led to a defunct bakery along the border. It had closed because too many of its customers were stuck in the east. Near the bakery's entrance, you could actually see East German guard towers looming over the wall. And in that bakery, young Berliners were tearing into the ground, trying to dig a tunnel under the wall and into East Berlin. We were digging vertically down, 
until we got to the groundwater table. If you don't want your tunnel to flood, stay above the water table. And from there we said, okay, half meter above the, the groundwater table, we dig forward, straight forward, horizontally. Very simple. Very simple in theory. In practice, Berlin is a nightmare underneath the surface. The city is a swamp. The ground is so wet and sandy that to this day, construction workers have to pump water out of Berlin's soil in order to build new subway tunnels. They even use mobile refrigeration units to freeze the ground solid in trouble spots. But the soil over by the bakery happened to be perfect for tunneling. Because here was the, the geologic um, soil is uh, consisting mainly of clay. That means if you dig there a hole in it, it is self-supporting, whereas sand collapses. And this is one of very, very few areas in and around Berlin where you have such soil formation. Yeah? That made it for us so interesting. Of course, Stasi knew it. So from an engineering perspective, this bakery seemed like the perfect place to dig a tunnel. But strategically, it seemed like a terrible choice. This was the spot where, right after the wall was built, some Germans in the east tried to jump out of their apartment windows into the west, which made the eastern government extra careful about security. During the lifespan of the wall, five people died on this stretch of border. So we're talking about a bunch of 20-somethings digging a tunnel the length of one and a half football fields. With a garden spade and a wheelbarrow. Under one of the most fortified borders on Earth. Ralph was actually joining the second tunnel that this group had dug. The first tunnel had stretched nearly 500 feet, a six-month effort. The day they reached the backyard of an apartment building in the east, it was snowing. And because the air inside the tunnel was warmer than outside, it left a small circle of melted snow. Which basically told the Stasi, yoo there's a tunnel over here. Within a few hours, the Stasi found out and flooded the tunnel with water. But Ralph Kabisch says that being 20 years old in free Berlin, they were all naive enough to try again. One of the student leaders, Wolfgang Fuchs, proposed a bit of reverse psychology. Wolfgang, who was a really smart guy, <laughs> said, you know, the Stasi, we fooled them. They would not even dream about that we use the same location for another tunnel. So idiotic nobody could be. And it worked. And that was the tunnel Ralph started working on in the summer of 1964. The bakery where the tunnel started was in the basement of an apartment building full of retirees. A group of 20 or so students going in and out all the time would have been suspicious. So they had to be stealthy. They could only come in and out every couple weeks. In other words, they had to live there. The bakery had become a makeshift home. They slept in military cots and warmed up canned food on a little electric stove that ran on borrowed electricity. Of course, we needed more power than a retired couple is using normally. The most stupid man of a, of a power company would say, my goodness, normally they pay, what do I know, about $20 a month, yeah? <laughs> and now they consume for 200 how come? So one of our friends managed to get to the power supply cable before it went into the distribution board, before the power was metered and registered to the various apartments. The windows were painted white on the inside to minimize suspicion, but maximize lighting. In the bakery's storage room, flour and salt and sugar had been replaced with heaps and heaps of dirt. 
And when they needed fresh supplies, like tools, baked beans, spare parts, tape, soda, that was where Ralph came in. I had a job as a student on the weekend to deliver drinks, home service. Yeah, I had a small uh, Volkswagen uh, bully, yeah, like a bus or station, a bigger station wagon. And that was, of course, perfect camouflage yeah, for bringing in tools, spare parts, cans, bread, drinks in these boxes where normally the bottles were. Yeah. How much soil do you think you moved in total? Um, the shaft going down that had a size of two by two meters, uh, 12 meters, that is uh, that's already almost 50 cubic meters. Yeah, and then 145. I never thought about it. Never thought about it. Could be close to 200 cubic meters. Yeah. <laughs> Craftsmanship. <laughs> An 18 wheeler truck can haul about 50 cubic meters. So wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow, through the summer and into the autumn, Ralph and his friends scraped and carved and heaved enough dirt to fill four 18-wheeler big rigs. All the while worried, the Stasi would spot them coming in and out, or detect them with special acoustic sensors. Fall 1964. They finally reached the east. They'd aimed for a basement, just like last time. But again, they miscalculated. The one who was on duty on the front face of the tunnel came back with a little plant. He saw, oh, there are roots, and that was grass. They hadn't noticed that the border zone sloped slightly downward. Which is forgivable, given the fact that they couldn't properly survey the land. But this time they were lucky. They had come up inside an abandoned shed. Soon after the tunnelers left the shed, they sent a crew of messengers above ground legally into East Berlin to alert their friends and relatives of the imminent escape. The message included a time, a place, and a password. At the time, the radios were buzzing with the news of the recent Olympics. Tokyo is dressed in her holiday best for the opening of the 18th Modern Olympics. And so the password was Tokyo. Tokyo. Ralph and his friends took turns standing watch in the east, holding pistols they hoped they wouldn't have to use. Back in the west, another student stood watch on the roof with a walkie-talkie. Number 17 is off the other side. Yeah, and we had, of course, a very precise plan. At 8.20 p.m. there's coming a couple. Um, at 8.30 p.m. there's coming a small family with one child. And with the walkie-talkie, he gave us the information, oh yeah, refugee number so-and-so is coming. We gave the information to the front end of the tunnel in the east, that our people could prepare to open the door if the refugee comes, knocks at the door, and is saying Tokyo. One by one, East Germans entered the shed in the east and came out in the bakery in the west. It was after 10 p.m. Ralph was now on duty in the west. He had parked his VW bus around the corner and was going to drive the escapees to their first night of freedom. In this bus, it was so silent. Nobody talked to the other, just sitting there like, like an ice block. And then I heard one whispering to his neighbor, who knows whether we are really in the West or is it not an, another trap of the Stasi. When I heard that, that, that was like an electric shock for me. 
These are East Germans who have just crawled to freedom through 500 feet of mud. But freedom had been out of reach for so long that they didn't believe it when they saw it. So Ralph decided to take a quick detour. He thought to himself, You go with them, not the shortest way. You go through Kurfürstendamm. That they see it with their own eyes. Kurfürstendamm was the center of West Berlin, site of the second largest department store in Europe. It was covered with neon lights and advertisements for Coca-Cola and Marlboro, which you'd never see in the East. Out of a sudden, they were chatting, they were joking, <laughs> yeah, laughing. We made it. As if it had been yesterday. It's still in my head. The tunnel operated for two nights. But among the students was at least one spy. At the end of the second night, two plain-clothed policemen knocked on the apartment door in the east, tipped off by one of the spying students. They did not know the password Tokyo. One of the students standing watch opened the door. A moment later, an East German soldier appeared, pushed his way into the building, and cornered the student at the door with a Kalashnikov. Then another student fired a shot. All of them sprinted to the backyard and into the shed while the East German police fired shots after them. By the end of the night, one East German soldier was dead. The tunnel had been destroyed with grenades, and 57 people had escaped. And so the tunnel became known as Tunnel 57. But the one person Ralph was trying to get out, his cousin, was not among them. After the tunnel was destroyed, East German newspapers wrote about Western gangsters who had tunneled in and killed one of their soldiers. The East German government installed a plaque where the escape had occurred, condemning this violent assassination. The Western students sent a letter over the wall, using balloons. It read, We speak on behalf of our group, which over the last half year, built a tunnel through which 57 fugitives fled, and at the entrance to which your son was shot. First, we would like to express our sincerest sympathies for so heavy a loss. They were taking responsibility for the death of this Eastern soldier. But the letter went on, but the real murderer is the system that addressed the massive flight of its citizens not by removing the cause of the problem, but by building a wall and giving the order for Germans to shoot Germans. This story persisted for exactly 30 years, longer than the wall even existed. The story that in helping 57 people escape, Western tunnelers killed an Eastern soldier. Years after the wall came down in 1989, Stasi records revealed that the Eastern soldier was actually killed by friendly fire in all the confusion. The sixth step to controlling and affecting population. Build a wall around information and preserve the regime's reputation. We destroyed the wall down to its roots. And only a year later we said, oh, what, what have we done with, with our own history? No clue. Only here 100 meters and there's a little bit left here yeah, and that was then pre preserved. You must understand that from situation. The Berlin, the West Berliners, they were, let me say, they were fenced in, yeah? They were like prisoners in, uh, in, a, in a free garden. There was such hate, such emotion, yeah? Turn it down, destroy it, never, 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 ever again. This is kind of the paradox of the past in Berlin. Destroy it, 
but never forget. This is a city with layers and layers of history, and yet much of it is gone. The bunker where Hitler died, for instance, was mostly demolished. For decades, it was totally unmarked to prevent it from becoming a symbolic site for neo-Nazis. The government finally installed a plaque in 2006. Even the largest remnant of the wall, the East Side Gallery, which is covered with paintings from international artists, is slated for partial demolition to make room for luxury apartments. Rolf Kabisch became a transportation engineer. He digs tunnels for a living. How many tunnels have you helped build Ooh. in your life? Oh, several. <laughs> uh, subway tunnels, yeah. Korea, China, Thailand. Rolf spent his entire engineering career digging underground. When he finished school, he got a job with the German engineering company that worked on railroads. They made him an international engineering consultant on underground train systems all over the world. Taipei railway tunnel, Taipei subway tunnel, Athens, two metro lines, complete metro lines. What else? Yeah. These tunnels were way, way bigger than the scrappy tunnel he dug with friends under the wall. But for Rolf, all those tunnels lead back, at least in his mind, to Tunnel 57. Let me say it a little bit uh, like a joke. It was our apprenticeship. <laughs> Tunnel 57 was produced by Roman Mars and Daniel Gross for the podcast 99% Invisible. I was in a building and I got on the elevator on the 39th floor. It dropped the bottom floor and then it stopped. I decided, well, it's jammed. I pressed the buttons and uh, the bell started ringing. On come a security guard and someone said, sir, are you okay? And I say, yes, I am. And then he said, relax, and we'll have you out of there soon. Coming up after the break, feeling claustrophobic in wide open spaces and feeling expansive in cramped quarters. Stay with us. One night, I was having a dream. Maybe I was about five years old. And I dreamt that I was on Captain Hook's pirate ship. And my head was a cannonball. I awoke to feel pressure on both sides of my head. My head was stuck in between the wall and the mattress, and I had to yell for 20 minutes until my mom came. To this day, I'm a little bit afraid of Captain Hook. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi, and today we're talking about tight spaces. Many years ago, Elizabeth Arnold covered the halls of Congress for NPR, which was a long, long way from her home and first love, the great wilderness and natural beauty of Alaska. Wide open spaces, great spans of ocean, mountains and trees as far as you can see, these are the places where she felt most at peace. And throughout her many adventures around the world, she tried to escape the crowds, the noise, and all the confined spaces. But sometimes, no matter how hard you try to escape the chaos, it finds you. I'm out here in the Chugach Mountains, and it's snowing. It's been snowing for about a week. The mountains and the ridgelines are, whoa, coming in and out. One minute you can see everything, and the next minute, 
All I can see is the tips of my skis. Anyway, I live here in Alaska because it's it's a big empty place and you can ski for miles like this and never see anybody. It's about as close to religion as I can get. Church and all that. Just being out here and feeling small and kind of wondering at the mystery of of it all. No matter what you believe in, when you're in a place like this, it's just in your face. Oh, there's a bull moose behind a tree about oh, 50 yards from me. It's just hunkered down in the snow. It's got snow on its face and back. He's not going anywhere, but I better. Woo. A little downhill here. I think people need space. Or I do anyway. So what happens when, when you put someone like me in a place like China? a country with a quarter of the world's population, something like 350 people per square mile. Well, I mean, forget the sheer density of a place like Beijing, even rural China. It's, it's just swarming with people. I was at this uh, open-air market in Hadapu, and, and there wasn't any open air. Even when I was inside this Jeep, driving along, I mean, you look at the map and you look for open spots where you think, you know, there's no names, you think there's no cities. There are. There's just no pause in this relentless march of factories and power plants and power lines and dams and and people. The people and the land both look exhausted, totally worn out from being so productive for so long. I read somewhere that Americans need more personal space than any other culture in the world. And it said 24 and a half inches. That's just two feet. I mean, that's not nearly enough for me. Okay, well, that was a long day. I'm now here in my little room with one light bulb. But nobody's staring at me, and I don't have anybody to stare at. So we drove way past midnight tonight, and even that late, the headlights would flash on these men crouched at the side of the road. There were just all kinds of people still out, brushing their teeth and washing their hair all on the road. It's just so crowded. Anyway, it feels good to be in this little room right now. The next day, we drove through what used to be, or what they said used to be, a grassland, and it it was the first open space that I'd seen in weeks. There wasn't any grass. The whole place had been grazed to dirt, completely overgrazed, and just trampled into this wide expanse of hard, cracked mud. And we pulled off the road, onto this mud to get around this Tibetan construction crew, and they blocked us. 
拿给他。你上来了，你我都说不上。哎呀，人家他给你保证了，我没说不给你钱。人家保证了，你就算了，拿给。It turns out this barren, overgrazed. So-called grassland is protected land, and we were assessed a fee for trespassing. So open land in China, it seems, no matter how degraded, is at a premium. Then we go up and over this pass, and there's a government-sponsored billboard encouraging family planning, and it's towering over this. Little shanty town underneath of these highway workers, and the sign is a picture of this smiling Chinese boy holding hands with his parents. And underneath it says, "Use contraception because China's future. Our children need room. The need for room and space is the one commodity China doesn't have, and it's the one commodity that all of China's people can't manufacture." So then I went north of all of this humanity to Outer Mongolia, which is a stunning contrast because it's the world's least populated country. I took the Trans-Mongolian Railway from Beijing to Ulaanbaatar. The terrace slopes and the brickyards and the dams and mines and power plants of China all gave way to sand. My eyes just rested on the horizon and I relaxed. For the first time in weeks, just looking out the window at nothing. So there I was in an, another jeep in the far northwestern corner of Mongolia, which is about as far out as you can get, and there are no roads. And there, there are names on the map. So you think you're going someplace, but there are no corresponding cities or even dwellings. There's nobody. I was crammed in a Russian jeep with seven Mongolian herders in their bright blue robes and orange sashes, and one small child, and one freshly killed sheep on the dashboard in the sun. And the jeep kept breaking down. And I looked around and thought about it, and realized there's no possibility of help. Try to get out of the wind here. I'm trying to use the jeep as a wind block. How to get out of the jeep? It's just getting a little too crowded here in outer Mongolia. We've been in this jeep for a long time. Everything imaginable has happened to it, and the driver keeps taking it apart and putting it back together again. And we don't have a clutch. Still have steering. But it keeps overheating. So, even though it's freezing, when we get to the top of a hill, we turn around and face the wind and open the hood, and then we sit here like this for hours. And they all play cards. So I always thought I wanted to come someplace really remote. Kind of having second thoughts about that right about now. Look, there's the hood. We gotta get in. Okay, let's give it a shot. So there's no road, and this treeless landscape of brown hills just is similar hour after hour after hour. And, and despite all of our stops and starts, nobody but me seems to be in any rush to get anywhere. No, no, we're pulling off the road again here. That's a bad sign. Uh. 
Okay, well, now I guess we're going to play cards again. After many more hands of cards, we finally did arrive at a tiny yurt high up in the mountains, and the Mongolians all hurried inside. Seven people, one small child, in this small canvas tent with a dirt floor. I mean, it's a tiny little tent, and it stinks, and it's smoky, and there are no windows, and yet they, you know, for days at a time, wouldn't go outside. And looking around, as we were slurping in another meal of mutton soup, I, I realized there were no windows, save the hole in the center of the roof for the stovepipe. And these people, still partly nomadic, live here in this remote, spectacularly scenic place, and yet they had no real desire to go outside or even look outside unless they had to. They spend more time with each other than most people do. It's almost because it is so vast and empty, it makes them more people people. But for me, it's completely different. I couldn't wait to get out of the earth. And when I did get out, I went right straight up into the mountains and started feeling better with every step. Being out in open places, that's what makes me feel good again. And then later that night, on the dirt floor in my sleeping bag, the Mongolians were snoring and shifting positions in this close circle of cots all around me. At one point, I looked up at the stars through this tiny hole in the roof and thought about Alaska and being on my skis and the quietness of the snow. And, and I realized I need open space. That's just who I am. Elbow Room by Elizabeth Arnold from Atlantic Public Media's Stories from the Heart of the Land. Lots of land under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever, but I ask you please, don't fence me in. Peace and quiet comes in all forms and prices. Sure, you can probably find it on a mountaintop or on the sea, but you have to get to said mountaintop or sea. If you're in the city surrounded by people and noise, sometimes you just have to settle for the next best thing. Here is the Isolation, Solitude, Confinement, Happiness, Freedom Domain. Here at this day spa, just a little way east of Melbourne, you can get all sorts of massages. Remedial massages, therapeutic massages, Reiki hot stone and Indian head massages. Also manicures and pedicures, lash extensions, spray tans, and something called body sugaring. Other items on the menu don't seem as friendly like the intense pulsed light treatments, or the skin needling, or the waxing, the kind you spell with three X's. One item on the menu is a thing they call flotation therapy. 
it takes place in what they call a flotation tank. Others prefer to call the tank a stimulus reduction environment, which is just the diplomatic version of what almost everybody calls it, a sensory deprivation tank. It's where you go to float on warm salty water in completely silent pitch black darkness. At this day spa, you can lock yourself away in one for three hours straight. Sensory deprivation tanks have been around for more than 60 years. They're invented by John C. Lilly, an American neuroscientist or connoisseur of consciousness who kept company with the likes of Allen Ginsberg and Timothy Leary. He preferred to call his invention the Isolation, Solitude, Confinement, Happiness, Freedom Domain. For John C. Lilly, it was an ideal place for taking psychedelic drugs and exploring the possibilities of telepathic communication with dolphins. Flash forward to now. You can't legally take those drugs anymore. Isolation, solitude, confinement, happiness, freedom domain turned out not to be a catchy name. And the dolphins aren't taking our calls. But floating in a dark tank full of salty water still has appeal in day spas across the world. Not so much as a way to turn on, tune in and drop out, but more as a calming follow-up after getting a massage and your nails did. You should know that I am naked right now. Sorry if that makes you feel uncomfortable, but just try to forget about that. Instead, picture a beige and dowdy room with a painting of a seascape hanging on one wall. Off to the corner, there's a shower. In another corner, there's some shelves stacked with towels and mini soaps and little deodorant cans. And in the middle of the tiled floor, next to this naked guy, Something that looks like one of those space-age roof rack cargo compartments for stashing skis and snowboards and boogie boards. Except this one's for stashing people. On top of the tank's sleek white exterior, there's a pack of earplugs for auditory deprivation, along with a hand towel for forehead sweat deprivation. Inside? Water. You aren't exactly deprived of too many senses at first. I mean, it's dark, of course, there's that. The floating is unusual, almost as though gravity itself has given up, but mostly just neat, nearly delightful. It could even be said to smell lovely with all that warm, salty water, almost beachy. It's the kind of smell that's better mixed in a breeze though, because let's face it, how many smells are good once you're actually soaking in them? The earplugs are a worry. Once the outside world goes quiet, the inner world of your body creeps in to take its place. You can hear your breathing. You can hear your heart beating. You can hear the icky sound of your eyeballs rolling around in your eye sockets. It's so boring that it's interesting. Left to its own devices, the brain turns to each and every thought it can scrounge up. There's work, life, and idle wonderings. Eventually, mercifully, it runs out of gas. Thirty minutes have passed. You're probably wondering how I'm keeping track of the time. Did I sneak a watch in? No. 
Did I start counting because I was bored? Because it kept my thoughts down? Because it was my one last tenuous grip on something real, something measurable, something beyond the confines of this impossible all-embracing blackness? Maybe. Ninety-three minutes and I'm dizzy. I don't know what's up and what's down, and I feel like I'm drifting through space and probably dead. With no sensors here to fill me in on what's happening, I'm as good as dead. Dead but still worried. At this stage, I'm just trying to keep calm. The hallucinations aren't helping, but singing to myself does, a little. I went down south with my hat caved in. Came back home with a pocket full of tin. Now it's been 25 years, I think, maybe 30. My body has evaporated and I'm now a bodiless blob of consciousness. The tank's blankness has leaked, swallowing everything around it. All matter in the known universe has ceased to exist and all that's left is a terrifying infinite void. Maybe I should have just gone for one of the massages. But as far as terrifying infinite voids go, this one's a surprisingly relaxing one. Without a body or a universe to worry about, it's easy to drift off into a guilt-free nap. After spending infinity in the great cosmic abyss, and after having a nap, I need to wee. Infinity is a long time to hold it in. Even if you're a bodiless blob of consciousness. Even if it turns out that you're only in there for two hours, not infinity. And not the three hours that you paid for. Having a body again is the worst. It's an awfully heavy thing to have to lug around. And don't even get me started on what it's like being subject to the laws of physics and gravity once more. But those sensors! Those glorious sensors! They're back too. Colours look more vibrant and lurid. They pop. And sounds sound richer, more complex and layered. Smells are particularly pungent. The world is crisp, blooming and overflowing with texture. I'm walking around the streets outside and I'm getting goosebumps from the sound of an old woman talking to her dog. And look! That stop sign! The colour red is hilarious. The colour green is making me thirsty for some reason. I don't like yellow anymore. I can't be sure just yet, but I think everything will go back to normal. 
eventually. The Isolation, Solitude, Confinement, Happiness, Freedom Domain was written by Toby Feely and produced by John Chia for Paper Radio and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It first appeared on Radio Tonic. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Whole Foods Market, with new locations in Streeterville and DePaul, supplying a wide variety of natural and organic groceries. You can find all the latest news about Whole Foods Market openings at wfm.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>